From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis joins us as mostly unvaccinated COVID patients inundate Colorado's hospitals and as 5 to 11-year-olds qualify for the vaccine. Polis also released his budget, how it addresses air quality and housing. Also this hour, a picture of one ICU in Grand Junction. We check in with an infectious disease doctor at St. Mary's Medical Center. And at the Global Climate Talks in Scotland, young people speak their minds, including college students from Colorado. We all know that we aren't our government. (laughs) There's so far that our vote goes, and then we're trusting those leaders to run the rest of the way. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they let us down. Sometimes they make terrible decisions that have lasting impacts. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado has the fifth highest rate of people with COVID-19 in the nation, and cases and hospitalizations continue to rise. Later this hour, I'll ask the governor what steps he's taking to help reverse this trend. First, though, the Western Slope has consistently been a hot spot for the virus, and at times, ICU beds have been full. Dr. Diane Janowitz is an infectious disease physician at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. And, Doctor, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. When ICU beds are full, as we've said, which has happened, what does it mean for a patient who needs that level of care, whether or not it's COVID that has landed them there? Well, uh, that's a tough question because when ICU beds are full, we start looking at ways we can accommodate um, patients and keep them uh, at the level of care that they need. So sometimes this means that we have to assign more patients to a nurse uh, who normally takes care of only one or two. They may be taking care of three. Um, They may have to be admitted to an area in the hospital that has been made into an ICU that normally isn't. So we're an area that we've had to add equipment to and nursing staff to, um, but we do our very best um, to admit and care for every patient uh, the best that we can. Are you currently using what has not been traditionally ICU space as ICU space? Is that happening right now at St. Mary's? Not right now, but we're preparing for that. Uh, We've seen double and triple digit numbers of people newly diagnosed with COVID every day. Um, Our numbers of admissions are the highest they've been right now since last year at the same time. And with the curve of the number of new diagnoses continuing to increase uh, here, we're anticipating that we will have more admissions. And so we're preparing for that possibility that we may have more patients than we do rooms available. What is the vaccination status of those being hospitalized at this point? So it's low. Um, So those who are admitted to the ICU 
we're looking at rates that are very close to 95% of those patients admitted to the ICU who are unvaccinated. Um, overall, probably about 85 uh, to 90% of the patients who are admitted to the hospital are unvaccinated. Uh, accounting for folks who might come in through the emergency room and aren't necessarily in the ICU, I suppose. Uh, and what about the ages of these folks? Uh, what else do you notice about the demographics of who has to be admitted? Sure. So the, the virus is continuing to affect those patients who we previously identified um, as having a high risk for being admitted um, with severe COVID. So those who are elderly, those who have other health problems, um, COPD, diabetes, uh, morbid obesity, but we're still seeing a fair number of patients who are admitted um, who are in the younger age category, who are under 50 years old and who are otherwise healthy with absolutely no health problems. So November 2020 was the pandemic's deadliest month in Mesa County. The second deadliest month was this October. And so it sounds like St. Mary's is preparing for a record November. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Our numbers now match what we saw last year. And with rates continuing to climb in our community and neighboring communities, uh, we're anticipating uh, a much higher burden of patients who are admitted to the ICU as well as the hospital. We know Mesa County has had a mediocre to poor vaccine and mask acceptance rate. But that is also true of places like Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and yet their numbers have been going down. Do you have a sense of why Mesa County is getting hit so hard right now? Uh, some of this is certainly with uh, masking and social distancing. We know for sure that without a doubt, those mitigate viral transmission, whether that's COVID, flu, other respiratory viruses. Uh, but right now we are also um, seeing that 100% of our patients who are admitted to the hospital uh, were estimating are, are due to the Delta virus. Uh, the Delta virus is much more contagious and often uh, causes much more severe illness as well. So the Delta variant uh, no doubt has taken hold in Mesa County. In your professional opinion, what would help turn the tide there? Well, so an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, I think we need to increase our vaccine rates. Um, Without a doubt, that is the best treatment that we have available. Um, and we're working hard to do that. Uh, our hospital uh, has a vaccine mandate in place and uh, we have lost very few staff to that. We're still able to provide the level of care we need to for all of our patients. And we're seeing more people come in for vaccines um, at the uh, county health department, as well as other ancillary um, areas that are providing uh, vaccines for patients and anyone who's interested um, in getting that now. What are the reasons you hear that people aren't vaccinated at this point? Um, I'd love to understand the nuances of that and, and perhaps what is getting them to change their minds. So there are quite a few nuances. There's a lot of reasons people are not accepting the vaccine right now. I think there are some people who are still fearful the vaccine isn't safe. safe. 
Um, others will cite uh, or believe that they have natural immunity because they've already had COVID or a very similar respiratory uh, viral illness. And then some people just have very deeply held convictions that um, not accepting a vaccine is a principle that they're going to live by. Um, we do know that the vaccine is safe. Uh, we've had over 400 million vaccines administered here in the United States. Um, we know that the vaccine provides extra protection after you've had the illness. Um, and so here at St. Mary's, we know the vaccine is safe, it's effective um, and very protective. So uh, we've all received our vaccine um, or um, even our, our boosters to protect not only our patients, but our, our family and um, our community. And while the vaccines are relatively new in and of themselves, the science they are based on is not new science. Uh, something important, I think, to understand. I, I want to uh, just elevate something you said there. If you've had COVID or you think you've had COVID and you think that makes you immune, that is not the case reinfection is possible, and you're encouraging those folks to be vaccinated, uh, just briefly, correct? Absolutely. Um, So you do get a small level of protection uh, if you've had COVID before, but you are absolutely susceptible to getting COVID again. So when you've had COVID, go and get your vaccine because you're much, much less likely to have it again um, after you've had the vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine, of course, has been approved for kids 5 to 11. Uh, Dr. Janowitz, do you think that changes the equation at all in Mesa County? I certainly hope so. Um, This was a really important uh, approval because children remain susceptible to COVID. Uh, They are getting ill, and this vaccine will help reduce uh, dramatically the number of children who are becoming ill because of COVID. And so I know that I have family and friends whose children have received their first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, and I hope we see a a good uptake uh, here in Mesa County as well. Before we wrap up, are you having to divert at this point patients to other ICUs? And if so, how far do they have to go? Or is that a step that you may have to take if things get worse? That's a step we may have to take. Uh, So as a large hospital here in Western Colorado, we accept patients from all neighboring counties Mm -hmm. uh, who have COVID and who need higher levels of care because we can provide that. Uh, When some of our patients become even more ill in our ICU and perhaps we don't have any beds, we may have to transfer patients elsewhere. um, And that would be more likely to the front range so that's a long distance um, that we would have to transport those patients, um, which is another hardship on their families as well. How are you doing as a human being right now? Um, I'm doing okay. Uh, I think I've been very fortunate here in Western Colorado. Um, this is what I do, and I, I'm an infectious disease doctor. So um, while the work that I've contributed through infection prevention um, has doubled or tripled, Um, I've been fortunate enough to receive the vaccine, um, get my booster, um, stay healthy, and be able to participate safely in a lot of outdoor activities. And I think that's really helped keep me going the last 18 months. A little balance when there's uh, a great need for it. Dr. Diane Janowitz, infectious disease physician at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction.
We'll be right back with a youth voice at the Global Climate Talks. And later, the governor hops on the line. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just a few of the improvements to the CPR app. If you already use the app, you'll need to update to the new version on your phone or tablet. And get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023 everywhere you go. The new CPR app. Search for Colorado Public Radio in the Apple App Store or in Google Play. It's been called a potential turning point for the planet. World leaders are meeting in Scotland for the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. It's a chance for nations to double down on their commitments to reduce emissions. And young people around the world are pushing them to do so, including some from Colorado. Katie Barker is a senior at Colorado State University. She's at the Climate Change Conference in Glasgow with a delegation of other students. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. And leading the delegation is CSU research scientist and associate professor Gillian Bowser, she's a veteran of these climate talks. These are her 11th. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Katie, this is a conference of world leaders, including President Biden. What do you think young people are adding? I think that young people add a lot to the conversation. And you might see on Twitter, there's a lot of feedback. Other youth constituencies have brought to the table some big concerns and have so far not been listened to by the world leaders, but we're working on it. I think, though, that the power of the youth is actually in this persistence and collaborative joining together and raising our voices together into one larger voice. It becomes hard to ignore when you have enough people jumping on. Also, youth really have the power in the grassroots to change their local communities, which then has a ripple effect into the outer communities. I hear in your answer the power of social media there. If you had a world leader's ear, what would you tell them? I think just to listen and and step aside to a point, you know, there's a lot that they're trying to hold on to for old ways of life and old ways of thinking. And it's time to let some more diverse voices take the stage and let some more people in to tackle this challenge together because no one can know it all. This is, <laughs> these are big problems that are very difficult to solve. And you, you can't be the one person to solve climate change. We can only do it all together. When you look at older generations and the way they do things, what would you most like to change? That's a hard one. I don't want to villainize the older generations because they also have a lot to offer us. But there's been a lot of resistance to changing our economies away from oil and gas. There's been a lot of holding on to the power from certain groups. And I think that it's time for people to just be a little more open-minded to different ways of knowing from around the world and hopefully valuing people more than we value the dollars of the very few. I'll get to the professor in just a moment, uh, who's been leading your delegation, but uh, I am 
quite enthusiastic to pick your brain, Katie. Uh, tell me, <laughs> tell me about an interaction or a conversation, a lesson perhaps you've learned so far at COP26. Yeah, I had a really neat interaction earlier today when I met a student from Russia who also just wanted to see the youth in her community rise up to some more climate action. And we had a great conversation just about how we can all make a difference and hopefully build an alliance even between her community and ours here in Colorado, because we live in that time now. We can bridge the gap through our technology and work together with ideas. Hmm. So that was really cool. So, Professor Bowser, you've often brought students to these sorts of international climate talks. Uh, and tell me w- what you think that has produced over the years and the benefits of that. Well, thank you for that question. I think Katie expressed it probably the best. I mean, I, our goal for this project, it's actually funded by the National Science Foundation mm. to introduce students to the international conversation in science. And so I think the power of that conversation is to running into someone from Russia and realize that they have a different way of thinking, different way of knowing, different cultural contexts. It's just so important for how we as scientists ask our questions. And so that's our goal is, as the professors in this project to make sure that our students have that experience. Um, they have a chance to be part of the professional stage. And more importantly, you know, able to look delegates or sit in a room with John Kerry right in front of you and hear the direct interpretation of how we have to manage this climate crisis. Hmm. Um, and I think that's just so important. Do you feel that there's a uh, an urgency to this conference more than others? Or, or what might be different about this one? We asked the students for sort of little quotes at the end of the official signing that they just completed. And one of the students says, you know, optimism coupled with urgency. And I think that best describes the time now. Um, I think when we were at the Paris Agreement, there was a lot of optimism um, and ambition and hope. But now we have this optimism and urgency. And I think it's really exciting, not just watching people run up and down the halls of the cup, but also that energy that you just sort of sense from everybody. It's a lot of really positive energy. We want to do something. We need to do it now. And it's really infectious to mm. be in the halls right now. Infectious in a, in a good way. I imagine other countries may have reason to be skeptical of the U.S. I mean, this country added more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere than any other nation historically. The U.S. also left the Paris Agreement under former President Trump, then rejoined under President Biden. Katie, I, I wonder if that's affected any of the interactions with other young people at this conference. You know, I don't think it actually has affected the interactions on the youth level because we all know that we aren't our governments, you know, but it has definitely been a question and it's been a question that I've been asked by multiple people of multiple generations throughout the conference of, well, do you think that we can trust you essentially? Can we trust the U.S. to stand by their promise? And obviously, I don't really know. I hope so. (laughs) And I think they hope so, too. That's kind of where we're all at is just in this. Well, we're hearing some good news, finally, some good initiatives, and we hope that we stick to it. I want to explore further your thinking when you say we are not our governments. 
Because in a democracy, you are at least a small part of your government. Say more about what that means to you. Yeah, that's a good point. Our countries are formed by us in that way, but there's so far that our vote goes, and then we're trusting those leaders to run the rest of the way. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they let us down. So we do what we can. But at the end of the day, you also can't blame any particular citizen for what their government has done, what their country has done. I'd love to run an idea by you both that no matter what you drive, how much you drive, fly, what you consume, where you choose to get your electricity, that all of those daily decisions are irrelevant if countries like the ones gathered there and corporations don't make fundamental changes. Professor, what do you you think of that? Well, I think one of the beauties of the COP and why, despite the health crisis and everything else going on, it was so important for us to bring students in the COP is because then you're looking, the government becomes individuals and it's not this sort of faceless mechanism. And you understand the importance of community, the global community that has to work together on this. So in some ways, it's really not how much you do a particular activity I think it's more of how much you increase your awareness of global activities. You know, there's just so much we have to do as a global community to bring down emissions. And it, it takes every all hands on deck. If you look at an extreme events or wildfires and other things, these are pretty complex interactions. And to blame them on, you know, someone but driving an old truck around misses the point of, the, of society as a whole bringing things forward. So I think it takes every little step, but more importantly, it takes recognizing that we're all individuals and every government is a collection of individuals. We sat in a room today with four of the 10 global women leaders. There are only 10 women who lead countries on this planet. Hmm. And four of them were sitting in one room with the fifth on her way. So we had half of all the global women leaders. That's that type of community you have to sort of be able to feel and touch and put a face to before you, you know, think about how governments act and how they don't act, because they're a collection of individuals. That was a powerful moment. We also know that women uh, may be disproportionately affected by the burdens of climate change uh, when those effects hit families, for instance, so that that too feels like an important piece of this and voice in this, would you say? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think part of the point, so the, the prime ministers, they were from a variety of countries, two from the global north, Estonia and Scotland, and then two from the global south, which was Tanzania and Bangladesh, and then one from, you know, sort of our hemisphere, the president of Barbados. And I think what was powerful was to say, again, going back to this, different ways of thinking that women leaders may think differently about the problems and the issues, um, and there's a lot of good science evidence of how women can be more impacted. So there's sessions on gender and climate change and trying to understand that climate change itself is not equitable. Mm -hmm. It is unequitable. It impacts different segments of our population, but it also impacts gender differently. And we need to understand that. And again, that's a really powerful point for the students and others and the youth to realize that the global community is struggling to understand that and that we all need to do better back at home. Katie, how do you see 
uh, your role in the years and decades ahead in fighting climate change? Uh, is science a field that you feel you'll dedicate your life to and in what capacity? Yeah, I think so. I have a little bit of a different background, I guess, than your usual undergraduate student. I actually spent five years or so traveling around the world. And that's when I really saw climate change happening in front of my eyes, like I had never seen it before. And it was no longer this abstract concept. It it really changed my world going around and seeing people and communities and ecosystems that are very much impacted by climate change right now. And I felt like I needed to do something. I needed to do something about it. And so I'm now pursuing a career in research for climate mitigation strategies. And I've stumbled upon soil as a partial solution. Mm. Of course, reducing emissions has to be a huge part of the conversation. The idea that soil can trap carbon, right? It can. Yeah. It's amazing. Most people don't know soil actually holds a whole lot more carbon than all of the vegetation on the earth, about three to five times more, in fact. And by protecting our soils, we have a pretty powerful tool there to store carbon and also to ensure food security and biodiversity because everything actually does depend on the soil. So it's pretty amazing and underappreciated, in my opinion. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Senior Katie Barker and Associate Professor Gillian Bowser of Colorado State University are at the COP26 talks in Scotland, which wrap up next week. Barker also hosts the podcast Livable Future, which aims to educate the public about sustainability and environmental science. And Colorado Matters continues after the break with Governor Jared Polis. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Independent local journalism struggles to survive in many parts of the country, and a new film takes a look at one small town in Iowa. Storm Lake follows the challenges of a small local paper trying to stay afloat. I'm CPR arts reporter Monica Castillo, inviting you to join me and the filmmakers for a conversation about their documentary as part of the Denver Film Festival. What we lose when we lose local news. Sunday at 2 at the Denver Film Festival. Details at CPR.org. Governor Jared Polis joins us now for our regular conversation. Colorado currently ranks fifth nationally in the number of COVID cases. Last weekend, the governor issued a health order that could lead to crisis standards of care. These are criteria hospitals and doctors can use to decide who gets treatment when resources are scarce. We'll dig deeper into the latest COVID news, along with a look at the governor's new budget and a little later in the program, new reporting about his taxes. Governor Polis, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Uh, happy to join you, Ryan. I hope that next time we can we can be together in person. I look forward to seeing you in person soon. I'd enjoy that. And we'll start with COVID. You've often said that hospital capacity is your North Star in determining what mandates or other steps are needed to control the virus. The Colorado Hospital Association now saying that there is a monumental strain on the system as it took new steps to manage patient transfers. 
Uh, Governor, what are the next specific steps you'll take to try and slow the spread in Colorado? So we're at about 88% hospital capacity. Um, Not great. Normally, you'd like to be in the 70s, but also... Uh, you know, not 100%. We have about 12% capacity. But as you get up to 88, 90%, what you find, Ryan, is that there's some hospitals that might be at 75%, others at literally 100%. And so we have to be very careful to make sure people are routed to the hospitals that have the space, have the room. Um, and, you know, hospitals continue to do uh, at a slower pace, perhaps, procedures like knee surgeries and back surgeries. They're certainly still able to accommodate a certain number of those given the current uh, caseload that they have. But obviously, uh, who wouldn't want to be at a lower number than 88%, but but that's where we are today, given uh, given the large number of unvaccinated folks that represent about 82% of the hospitalizations. We heard earlier in the program from an infectious disease expert at St. Mary's in Grand Junction, who is braced for a worse November in Mesa County. Indeed, she says the vast majority of those hospitalized are unvaccinated. Are there specific steps that you feel you need to take in the next weeks to prevent a, I don't want to overstate this, but cataclysmic November and December? I mean, the, the biggest thing that we are focused on is getting people vaccinated and protected. And the work continues on people getting their first and second doses. But you're, you know, you're going to a smaller and smaller group. I'm thrilled that there's, you know, three, four thousand people a day still getting their first dose. That's wonderful news that there's there's lower hanging fruit on the booster shot for everybody after six months. I got mine. I, I hope you got yours, Ryan. Have you gotten yours yet? Has it been six months? My booster. Yes, I've gotten it. Good, thank you. And I mean, it, the, the data is just off the charts on the level of protection that that provides you. So for those listening, if it's been six months after Moderna or Pfizer or two months after Johnson Johnson, get that booster. And then the other new frontier, we're so excited about this is five to 11 year olds. Now for five to 11 year olds, uh, you know, as a father of a 10 year old and a seven year old, I don't want them to get sick. It's often not as bad as adults, but nevertheless, there's 15 to 20 kids hospitalized for COVID almost every day in Colorado. I can't wait to get my two kids vaccinated. I plan to do it this weekend. And I encourage parents across the state who care about their kids uh, five and up to get them vaccinated as soon as possible as well. As I mentioned, you issued an executive order that could pave the way for crisis standards of care, guidelines hospitals can use to determine who gets what when resources are limited, be it ventilators, ICU beds. Uh, You haven't invoked those standards yet, but do you expect to? You know, the hospitals want to have it, and we we have had it through most of the pandemic. Uh, It'll be up to our our chief medical officer, Dr. Eric Franz, when when to implement those. Uh, We are not anywhere close to being short of ventilators or anything like that, so it, it wouldn't be about who gets ventilators. Uh, what it might be is about um, when when people are discharged uh, and and exactly um, how they are giving care with nursing ratios and those sorts of things. So I, I you know if necessary it'll occur before because we're not going to overwhelm our hospital system. That's our you know commitment I make to the the people of Colorado in managing this pandemic. We're at eighty eight percent. You know we're we're not going to let it be a hundred percent. We're we're going to take steps as we already have taken. We've requested FEMA teams coming in. We're trying to move the mon- monoclonal antibodies out of hospitals into freestanding centers to free up space. And we also encourage everybody who gets COVID, especially if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s, or you're at risk, uh, seek out monoclonal antibodies. They can reduce hospitalizations by 50, 60%, not nearly as effective as the vaccine, 
But nevertheless, if you catch COVID early, uh, they can have a positive impact. It's too late after you're hospitalized for COVID. Monoclonal antibodies are too late at that point. We asked for listeners' questions, as we often do, and here's one. Hi, this is Anne Rarick from Arvada. I'm wondering what the rationale is behind enacting the crisis standards of care at hospitals, but not implementing a statewide mask mandate. Uh, We know that COVID is airborne, so why not use an easy and effective tool in our tool belt that can combat the spread? Thank you. Why isn't there a statewide mask mandate, given the seriousness of the predicament right now, Governor? Sure. Well, we know that masks can be effective in delaying people from getting COVID. Uh, Roughly 50% reduction is what a constellation of the data shows in in the rate of transmission. Uh, And the reason that uh, they aren't more widely deployed, and by the way, I encourage people to wear masks indoor around others, especially if you're unvaccinated. But even if you're vaccinated, it's a good step if you're in a crowded place to do and certainly follow local mask orders, is we actually have uh, unlike last time around, where we, we did have to go with the statewide mask order because it was the only tool we had, we have a much more effective tool, far more than 50%. The vaccine is 90% plus effective. And, and there's an asterisk on that, Ryan, because it's really more than that. Yes, masks can reduce the chance of you getting a 50%. Vaccines can reduce the chance of you getting a 90%. But there's more to it. And here's what I mean. If you wear a mask and get COVID anyway, the case of COVID you get is just as bad as if you weren't wearing the mask. If you get vaccinated and have a breakthrough case of COVID, the case of COVID is much less severe and much less chance of hospitalization or death. Just to put an exclamation point on it, just during this Delta variant period the last few months, Colorado, zero people under 40 who've been vaccinated have died from COVID. They just don't die if you're vaccinated. 31 have died who are unvaccinated under 40. And the data is almost as stark in the 40 to 60 age group. We lost 153 people died who were unvaccinated. Only 13 people died who were vaccinated. It doesn't render you invulnerable, but it increases your odds tenfold. And of course, wearing a mask is a good idea, but getting vaccinated is like exponentially more important to protect yourself. Okay, so I hear that your emphasis is on getting people vaccinated and not on uh, imposing a statewide mask mandate uh, because you you think that would be ineffective. Well, again, wear we, you know wear a mask around others indoors is a is a good idea. We have a more powerful tool. We had to re- we had to resort to this kind of you know nineteenth century technology early in the pandemic, which was a mask. I mean, this is the stuff they used during the Spanish flu. I, I, what a it was for me kind of a sad commentary. On, on human progress, that that's what we had. We like, what do we got to stop this thing? We got masks. Like we had them in 1850, we had them in 1913, and and, and we had them, sorry, 1919, and we had them last year. Thankfully, there's a triumph of modern science that has given us a tool that is more than 10 times more effective than masks, because not only does it prevent the spread, it also substantially reduces uh, the uh, the transmittability. So, so of course, you know, uh, wear a mask around others indoors, especially if you're unvaccinated, it decreases your chances by f- about 50%. But here's the thing, uh, Ryan, if you're wearing a mask, you probably eventually will still get COVID because it only decreases the chance by 50%. Maybe you get it in three months instead of this month. And there is some value to that with regard to our hospital system. 
But if you really want to avoid COVID or have a less severe case and not have it be life-threatening, get vaccinated. You said in a press conference this week that people who are not vaccinated have a, quote, death wish. And it made me think of an op-ed I saw out of Boston proposing that people who are not vaccinated pay more in health insurance premiums. Do you agree with that? Well, I know that some companies are doing that to reflect the increased risk. Uh, I think rather famously Delta Airlines uh, did that early on. They said, you know, fine, it costs us more to cover you if you're not vaccinated. It's an extra 200 bucks a month. Um, From an economic perspective, it's certainly reasonable that people, you know, bear their own cost of, of, of increased risk that they're taking rather than socialize it across people that are already vaccinated. Let's talk just a bit about vaccinating kiddos. Uh, On Wednesday, indeed, the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine for those 5 to 11. Uh, To attend school, kids have to be vaccinated against a whole slew of diseases, diphtheria, measles, tetanus. Should COVID-19 be added to that list for school attendance at some point? Well, first, uh, I am so excited uh, to get the approval from Director Walensky Tuesday night. Uh, my kids are 10 and 7. They're getting vaccinated this weekend. Uh, I know that there's some parents out there trying to, you know, book their kids' appointments. They will get those the next week or two. I mean, the first few days, uh, a lot of the slots have filled, but but generally people are finding them for next week. We're doing some large mass events over the weekends. Uh, and our goal is to vaccinate at least half of 5 to 11-year-olds with the first dose by the end of January. We're working with everybody from sports teams to zoos uh, to do that. And, and I encourage uh, parents to to take that case. Um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, where, where it's going with regard to what different school districts will will or won't require. From our perspective at the state and the epidemiological perspective, uh, if we can reach 50, 60 percent, uh, that'll make a major impact in reducing the transmission of the virus. Let me point out, though, that the vaccine requirements for those other diseases emanate from state law. I'm pretty sure uh, it was the CDPHE website uh, that, you know, had the list of diseases that you have to be vaccinated against to attend school. Do you think it's the state's role to tell school districts this ought to be a, a proviso? A, a well, in, in, in saying that, Ryan, I think it's important to point out that it's more like a default of what you should get for your kids, but any parent can opt out of those as well. They, they simply sign uh, a, a paper that they don't want their kids to have it. So in practice, it's 90% of kids have uh, that set of vaccines and be 95 in some school districts. Uh, so if, if, if this one were being talked about as one of the recommended doses, uh, of course, parents would still be able to opt out. Okay. But it doesn't sound like you'd lead on that front, adding it to the list. Uh, let's... Well, uh, the, the, the list, though, uh, you describe is kind of required. I just want to make sure your listeners know it's not required to attend school. It is uh, kind of the default or recommended course of vaccines. My kids had them. Um, I encourage every parent to get their kid vaccinated. But in practice in Colorado, somewhere between five and 10 percent of kids, uh, their parents, you know, sign an exception for that. Governor ProPublica this morning released an investigation into your taxes under the headline, How These Ultra-Wealthy Politicians Avoided Paying Taxes. And it found that in 2013, 14, and 15, you paid zero in federal income tax, and that you found strategies to keep your taxable income quite low, around 8% when you have paid. Should you be paying more in federal income tax? 
Well, you know, first, I think it's important to point out, of, of course, there's there's nothing that anybody has said in any article other than that I've paid all that my taxes required by law. To be clear, nobody is uh, saying anything else. I also agree with the premise that the tax system favors uh, the wealthy and big corporations. Um, that's why I champion tax reforms uh, for a better, fairer system, including in here in Colorado, where we actually delivered on reducing the income tax for every Coloradan and then paying for that by closing loopholes that benefit corporations and the wealthy, a several hundred million dollar package that I was proud to sign, uh, sponsored by Representative Sirota and Representative Weissman uh, last year. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of work to do and and um, are, we're doing better at the state level, but I strongly support and I hope that uh, the, the Democrats in Washington use the reconciliation package as an opportunity to make our tax system more fair. Does that mean you want changes in federal tax law that would make you pay more? Is that what you're asking for? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think that uh, income uh, is not the best uh, way to tax the wealthy. I mean, there's folks like Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk that that will effectively never have income to tax because they have enormous gains rather than recognize them, they can borrow against them. So I have long, uh, and I've, as you know, probably have ruffled feathers in, in the Democratic Party by saying we got to get rid of this income tax or at least decrease it, um, because frankly, it's not a good way uh, to tax the very wealthy. And instead, we should look at a number of different things. You could look at pollution tax, a wealth tax, a value added tax. Most other countries have figured this out better. And I think one of the reasons that we, not not the only reason, but one of the reasons you see these larger gap uh, in our country between the super wealthy uh, and everybody else is because of our unfair tax system. What specifically should you be paying more taxes on? That is to say, if you were to change federal tax law, what is, how, how would you tax yourself in a fairer system? Well, you know, lately I've been more focused on on the state tax law, Ryan, and we did make some progress. But but federal, again, I, I would say that income and capital gains tax are not a good tax to have. Um, you know, you can decrease them or get rid of them altogether. I'm fine with both. Here in Colorado, we've decreased the income tax twice. And then you say, what do you replace that revenue with? Uh, I, I'm open to a wide variety of ideas, but generally they fall in three main categories. One is some kind of pollution or carbon tax, mm -hmm. which has the added benefit of helping to save the planet. What a great idea. The second would be some kind of wealth tax, uh, perhaps on property above a certain level uh, or, or other assets. The third would be a value added tax, which would simply uh, uh, tax money at each stage of transfer and transaction. Uh, and it would have, you know, the wealthy would pay a significantly higher amount, regardless of whether they're making income or not, uh, as they purchase things or move things around. So, you know, it can be those three, um, any one of those three, two of those three, they're all better than the income tax, uh, uh, for sure. Uh, if your goal is to generate more government revenue in a more efficient way, that doesn't discourage growth like the capital gains and income tax do. According to this investigation, Charitable giving brings down your tax burden significantly. That's not a surprise. Um, but they find that some of that spending paid for mailers that had your name all over them and had, to quote the article, the feel of a campaign ad. Uh, this was while you were a member of the State Board of Education prior to running for Congress. Did you use your charity to promote yourself? Well, that's a you know very cynical view, Ryan. I um, for me, my my public service is a core value. I never 
thought it would necessarily, you know, take me into public office. I, I started my foundation and work and, and have a passion for improving our schools in Colorado. I've started uh, two public schools. Uh, and obviously, Ryan, I didn't didn't name those schools, the Jared Polis School. They're, they're called the New America School and Academy of Urban Learning. Uh, unless folks dig into the history, they don't often even know that I founded and served as superintendent of New America School. I also started Community Computer Connection, uh, co-founded Patriot Bootcamp to, for, to give veterans new job skills. So I'm very proud of that work. Frankly, if I never became governor, if I never became congressperson, uh, those would be an even bigger part of um, the legacy of, of what I was trying to do to make Colorado an even better place. You have filed paperwork to run for re-election. Um, can you confirm for me that you're running? And if so, will you release your taxes? Well, I've, uh, I, I think I filed the paperwork. I, I'm looking at probably doing a um, re-election you know, tour uh, in January or February and, and visiting different parts of the state and, and hearing from folks. I've, I've, I've already been uh, you know, getting out and, and, of course, meeting with folks. Just yesterday was in Pueblo and, and uh, was in Salida the week before. So we're, we're working hard. And uh, you know, in terms of re-election, I think the best thing that any incumbent should be doing is doing a good job. So I strive every day to do a good job. And uh, hopefully uh, that'll be rewarded by by the voters. You know, I, I um, if you recall, Ryan, you know, sort of going back to 2018, uh, I had an opponent that didn't release his taxes. Um, I, I think all candidates should be held to the same standard. And I support requiring candidates to make additional uh, releases, whether it's their their taxes or when I was in Congress, we had very uh, uh, lengthy disclosures of our of our assets, um, which was also something I supported. I served on the ethics committee there, but it's also important to hold all candidates to the same standards. And so, what I think doesn't work is if you know one candidate is is doing it and another candidate isn't. Um, so you know, I I will I will look at that. I, I don't want any of that to be politicized, but I'm very happy to release everything that um, that should be released by law. I support more uh, releasing it by law. And, and if uh, if I have opponents willing to share that information, then, then we'll be able to take a look at doing that too. So you'll do it if they do it, I hear you saying. We have just a few minutes left, and I want to make sure we have time to talk about your proposed budget. Uh, a $40 billion proposal. Uh, this is just... I, a- I, would add, I would add, by the way, Ryan, that mine have sort of almost de facto been shared because somehow ProPublica, the, the, the site, they have them and they reported on them. So, I mean, I know you haven't seen them and, and they're not out there, but obviously reporters have seen them and they've reported on them. So I just wanted to point that out there too. Um, thank you for that. Uh, to, to this $40 billion proposal, uh, again, the legislature will make the final choices. But beyond keeping the pandemic at bay, what's your single top priority and why? Um, I, one of the things I'm most excited about as a lifelong champion of public education is we're increasing per pupil student funding by $526 per student. One of the largest increases in history, highest per pupil investment in history. What that means is like, let's say a class of 25 students they'll have an additional twelve dollars or $13,000 to invest in that classroom, whether it's teacher salaries, whether it's smaller class size, whether it's better resources. Um, we also know that uh, our cities are struggling with increased homelessness, Denver, Aurora, Colorado Springs, and we wanna make an investment and partner with, with our cities to substantially reduce homelessness, providing increased opportunities for residential drug and alcohol treatment, uh, mental health treatment, and really make sure that our streets are safe and that we provide the best possible care to help people uh, recover their dignity and, and, and move forward uh, in a self-sufficient way. 
Last year was one of the worst on record for ozone pollution, something you and I have talked about in the past. And you're proposing a program to help cut that $28 million to provide free public transit on bad ozone days. Uh, What evidence do you have that free tickets on transit will get people out of their cars? So we do have evidence from other places that have implemented this. So what this would mean is um, uh, ozone is at its highest during our summer months related to heat. So let's say it's, uh, you know, June, July, August, as an example, or uh, likely the highest ozone months. We would have a program with local transit agencies, could be your local bus uh, agency, it could be RTD, it could be others. Well, we will partner with them, provide some of the money for a free transit pass for that period of time, which absolutely will increase ridership during that period of time. The real interesting question, Ryan, and what I hope also comes out of it is lasting benefit beyond that. Meaning once people uh, get that habit and see how easy it is, if you know, for those who it is easy, if there's a bus route near where you commute or work and, and, and you get into, will some of them remain riders once they're introduced to it on a free basis during the summer? There's a net benefit just during the ozone months alone to get those cars off the, the road. It'll lead to cleaner air. But we're also hoping that it'll inculcate that, that, that habitual use of, of public transit in a greater way. Uh, we want public transit to be more convenient. It's important to invest in public transit. We did that through uh, House Bill 260, our transportation and infrastructure bill, which is very transit oriented for the entire state. Governor, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, perhaps next time we can be face to face. Thanks for the remote connection. Looking forward to you, Ryan. Take care. Democratic Governor Jared Polis. He speaks regularly with Colorado Matters. Michelle P. Fulcher produces these conversations. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. Thanks as well to Anthony Cotton and Michael Hughes. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.